following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 14 through 18 today. As you can see there on the screen. Before we... uh, We read the passage, though. Uh, Ever since the Garden of Eden, uh, one of Satan's best strategies has been convincing people that they can be like God. Right? So, what what did Satan tell Eve? He said, God knows that in the day you eat from the tree, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, Eve, she really liked that. She's like, I'd, I'd kind of like to be like God. I'd kind of like to know what God knows. I'd, I'd like to be in His shoes. And so, she agreed. And she tried to be like God. And it didn't work out so well. She did not become like God. And, and yet, the God temptation has worked quite well for Satan for a long, long time. He has continually tried to tempt us with the idea that, that somehow we can get to God's level. And, uh, and that, that particular temptation works incredibly well in our day. You know, the, the humanist religion of our day preaches that you are very important. That you should do whatever makes you happy. That you should live to serve yourself. Because you really matter. And we all like that, right? We, we like to be told, do what I want to do, live the way I want to live, make myself happy. And so we live in a day where, where it's kind of just the assumption of our culture that we are all little gods. And sadly, a lot of churches have, have evolved to, to preach sort of a Christianized version of the same message. You know, so you go to a lot of churches around town and, and everything will be about how important you are. And how God can help you live the fulfilled life that you want to live. Now, now of course, you are important. We are are made in the image of God. And and Jesus oftentimes appeals to human interests. But true Christianity, true Christianity is not fundamentally about you. True Christianity is about God. and, And God is not merely a strategy for you to live a healthier life. No, the Bible teaches that He is the sovereign Creator and Lord. And so it is our job to worship Him. We exist for Him, not He for us. And our faith will never quite make sense until we embrace that reality. That I am small, And God is big. And frankly, we will never quite enjoy the rest, the full rest and peace that we ought to find in God until we embrace that fact. And so, one of our greatest needs, and it's a lifelong process, it's it's not something that you can just fix in one sermon, is to replace my natural big me theology with a big God theology. Where, where He is the center of it all. And, and, and so, the passage we are at today, I'll just tell you up front, 
No one is going to tell you to preach this passage in the church growth classes, right? This is not the passage that if you want to grow a big church, get a lot of people to follow you, a lot of people to love you, they are not going to tell you to preach Romans 9. They're going to tell you to skip this chapter. Because this is a hard chapter, it's an offensive chapter to the natural man, but, but it is a vital chapter to thinking rightly about who God is and who I am. And so the next two weeks, this week and next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at some really, really hard passages of Scripture that confront that big me theology. And so our text for today is verses 14 through 18, which say, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Folks, this is a hard passage of Scripture. That the challenge is hard just because it's complicated, but, but, but especially because it challenges so many of our natural assumptions. And, and notice that it's built on a very important question that Paul asks in, in verse 14. And, and I'm going to summarize the, the question as being Is election unjust? What, what does Paul say in verse 14? He asks, There is no injustice. With God is there. So, so he's asking here about the justice of God. And of course, that's a very important issue. Because people accuse God of injustice all the time. When we go through hard times, what do we want to say? God, that's not fair. And so accusing God of injustice is a pretty common human action. And, and so anytime life gets hard, we, we are tempted with this very issue. But, but why does Paul raise the issue of God's justice in this context? Well, remember that the big concern of Romans chapter 9 is, as verse 6 says, that it appeared as if the word of God had failed to the Jewish people. So, so, so Jesus had come, and, and most of the Jewish people had rejected Christ as the Messiah. And so that was a problem because that the Jews assumed that, that just being the descendants of Abraham practically guaranteed them the right to be the children of God and guaranteed them their salvation. But it wasn't happening. Most of the Jews had rejected Jesus. It was clear by the time Paul wrote Romans that that wasn't going to change. And so, to them it appeared as if God was being unjust to the Jewish people. And Paul responds in verses 6 through 13, which we looked at two weeks ago, by arguing that God's purpose, not physical descent, has always determined who will be saved. It's God's purpose. And, and he proves that by going all the way back to Abraham himself and his sons and his grandsons. And so we saw that, that, that Abraham had two sons. Actually, he had, he had eight total. And, uh, and as well, uh, his son Isaac had two sons. But only two of them were the recipients of the promise. 
Abraham's son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. And in the case of Jacob and his twin brother Esau, God's choice especially defied human expectation. Because God chose the younger brother instead of the older brother. And He chose Jacob before he was even born, Paul says. Before he had done anything either to to merit the favor of God or to lose the favor of God. Now Jacob didn't even get, or excuse me, Esau didn't even get a chance. Before he had done anything right or wrong, he, he lost the blessing of God. And therefore, God's purpose alone determines the recipients of the blessing. What, what, how does Paul end the passage? He says in verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, that doesn't seem right to us. And how can God reject Esau before he had done anything right or wrong without giving him a chance to earn the favor of God? And so today's passage anticipates that we are going to wonder, is there injustice with God? So the purpose of our passage is to answer this question. Does election compromise God's righteousness? Did God treat Esau unjustly? And and more importantly, was God being unjust to all the Jews of Paul's day who rejected Christ? Now, I do have to say here that, that we would naturally expect that Paul's answer would be, well, it's not God's fault that all these Jews rejected Jesus. It's their fault. They're the ones that are saying no to him, so of course there's no injustice with God. The fault is with the Jews. But Paul doesn't say that, does he? Because that's not actually what Paul believed. No, he believed that God is sovereign. He just argued in verses 7-13 through 13 that God's purpose determines who will be saved. And so, Paul believed in election. Because if he didn't, he's got a really easy answer over here. But he doesn't. And so, the way he answers verse 14 in the following verses proves that, that we are on the right track in, in following Paul's argument. So, so, the, so, Paul's fundamental concern in our passage is with the justice of election. Was God unjust to choose Jacob over Esau? What was he unjust to reject most of the Jews of Paul's day? And in our day, is God unjust to choose some for salvation and to pass over others? Now, now that might seem like, well, well you might have several responses to, the, to this issue. You, you might think, I, I don't care about that. I don't want to think about it. That's too big for me. You might, it's, it's uncomfortable stuff to think about. You start talking about the, the ways of God, the justice of God. I mean, it's, we're, we're hitting at the core of our faith. And of course, you, know, you might think, I don't want to think about this. I don't want to talk about it. I don't care about this. But the reality is, you do begin to care, for example, when you've raised your children under the sound of the gospel their whole lives, and then as an adult, they reject the faith and walk away from Christ. Or you're standing over a casket of someone with whom you've shared the gospel many, many times, and they never believed on Christ. And you assume that they are in hell. And in those moments, you do 
wonder, where is the justice of God? Why didn't God save this person? And of course, anytime life gets hard, we are tempted to think, I deserve better. God, you're not being fair. So it is very relevant for us to consider who God is. Our confidence in Him and our response to life's most difficult and tempting moments. We need to listen. We need to think about the justice of God. And Paul is going to give a full answer to that question in verses 15 through 18. But I don't want us to skip over the fact that he first answers at the end of verse 14 by saying, may it never be. And so before Paul gets to his explanation, he wants to begin by just noting how reprehensible it is that we would ever accuse God of being unjust. And I think that's very instructive. Because on the one hand, the Bible consistently invites us to ask God our hard questions. Or to ask our hard questions to wise, godly counselors. So I'll say to you, you if you've got a hard question about the core of your faith, about the Bible then we want you to ask us those questions. We certainly don't want you to go to YouTube or the internet to get your answers. We want to help you go to the Bible and get answers. And so, and, and so God and, and godly counselors are not intimidated by hard questions because we have a rational faith. The Bible makes sense. And so God welcomes our questions, and, and you, you can see that in the book of Job. You see it in, in the prophets. You see it in many of the Psalms. That God is not scared of difficult questions. But, there are lines that we must never cross. And one of them is, is we never have the right to sit in judgment on God. We never have the right to accuse God of of being unjust or evil. I, I have no authority to do so. And so doing so is arrogant, it is blasphemous, And frankly, it is terribly dangerous. So, you can ask your questions. You can seek your answers. But don't ever let your mind go to the place of saying, God is wrong. Because that is a grave offense. So so that said, Paul follows with two Bible answers to his questions. So, So the first answer he gives is in verses 15 and 16, where he argues that God has the right to display mercy. So he says in verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now now that verse is quoting from one of the most significant, oft-quoted statements of God in the entire Bible. And, And so this quotation is very important. And it comes from one of the most crucial moments in the history of Israel. So so keep your place here, but turn back to Exodus 32. Exodus 32, because we really need to understand the context for this quotation. So, So Exodus 32 tells the story of Israel's sin with the golden calf. Most of you know this story. Just a just a short time prior to this chapter. God gave the Ten Commandments. And one of the, the second commandment that God gave was, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. And what did Israel turn around and do? 
they made an image in the likeness of a cow. And they worshipped it as a representation of God. And God was angry. I mean, look at what God says in Exodus 32, verse 10. God says to Moses, Now then, let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Now, now what God wants to communicate here is the fact that Israel deserved to be wiped from the face of the earth. They did not deserve any more time, any more mercy. They had heard the voice of God, do not say, do not do this. And they turned around and they did it. And they did it boldly and proudly. And so they deserved to be destroyed. But Moses prays. He prays and God mercifully determines not to destroy them. But all is not well. Because at the beginning of chapter 33, uh, I won't read it, but God says to Moses, I'm not going to destroy you guys, but I'm not going to go with you to the promised land. I'll I'll send an angel with you, but but I'm not actually going to accompany you to the promised land. And, And that's not good enough for Moses. Moses knows that they don't need an angel. They need God. And so he continues to pray, And then chapter 33, verse 14, God responds. It says, and he said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses asks God to confirm that promise by revealing his glory to Moses. And notice God's reply to him in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 33. Verse 18, it says, then Moses said, I pray you, Show me your glory. It's quite a a request, isn't it? And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So, So there's a statement at the end of that verse that Paul quotes in our text. And then notice what God says when his glory actually passes in front of Moses in chapter 34, verses 5 through 7. Chapter 34, verse 5 says, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And folks, it's an incredible experience that Moses has. I mean, like, if I could have like one Bible experience, like this is, this is right there at the top. I mean, this, this is incredible. What Moses experiences here And God makes a very important point through it. Specifically, He's communicating in both of the passages we just read that there was nothing in Israel that demanded His mercy. That there was nothing in them that obligated God to forgive them of their sins and continue to be faithful. And as well, there was nothing in Moses that deserved the experience of of seeing the glory of God. 
So, so why did God do these things? Because in His kindness, in His purpose, He freely chose to show that kind of grace. So, so how then does that quotation answer the question that Paul has about the justice of God? Well, 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 well first of all, I think we need to see that, that Paul wants to make the point that the Bible is on his side. The Bible is on his side. Now, now we can skip over this, but this is really important. This is the third uh, of four Bible proofs that Paul uses to make his point in, in verses 6 through 23. Or, well, 6 through 18, technically. Third of four, four Bible proofs. And, and so Paul, uh, Paul here believes in the authority of Scripture. And, and so for Paul, you know, if the Bible teaches a doctrine, that's all that matters. And I hope that we agree with Paul on that. You know, that, that when the Bible speaks to a doctrine, that should always be enough whether we like it and it makes sense to us or not. So, so, so don't ever respond to Scripture by saying, well, I, I just can't accept that. When, when the Bible is clear, you must accept it. No matter how you feel, no matter what your heart tells you, when the Bible speaks, we respond. And in this case, Exodus 33 verse 19 is clear Bible proof that God is not obligated to show Israel mercy. He did it freely based on His purpose at the very beginning of the nation. And now in Paul's day, if he wanted to withhold mercy, he was also free to do so. Because he is God. So, so what does that mean for us? Well, I think another point is that I have no right to demand God's mercy. I have no right to demand God's mercy. Now, now this is where Paul's theology becomes very offensive to the modern man. Because most people assume that God ought to be merciful to me. If He's a good God, then He should be kind to me. Because I'm important. I'm valuable. I'm not that bad. And any God who doesn't bend over backwards to be kind to me, well, He's just a mean ogre. And at the very least, God ought to give everyone an equal chance. But God says, you have overestimated your worthiness and you have underestimated the holiness, justice, and glory of God. And Exodus 32-34 to illustrate that beautifully. Now, now I doubt that anyone in this room has ever danced around a golden calf and worshipped it. But we have all defied the infinite holiness of God. We have all worshipped ourselves in the place of God. We've worshipped other things. We all deserve condemnation. And so the mercy, if you're a child of God, the mercy that you have received, it is truly mercy. And, and God is only compelled to show mercy by His own goodness and purpose. You have no right to demand it of God. And that brings me to a third important point, which is that God's purpose alone determines who receives mercy. And folks, that's really the main point of Exodus 32 to 34. You know, that God is saying, 
You know, I, I have every right to destroy you. But I am making the choice to be merciful because that is who I am. And so that's what he declares in, in both of those passages that we read. You know, Moses did not talk God into being a better version of himself. I mean, no, notice the conclusion here in, in verse 16, back in Romans chapter 9. Notice the conclusion that Paul makes in verse 16. He says, So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So, so you will never compel God to do anything. And you can't take any credit for your standing with God. If you're a Christian today, it is all mercy. And so because it is all mercy, God is free to show mercy to some and not to others. God is not obligated to give everyone the same opportunity. He is free to act according to His purpose alone. Because all, we, all, we all deserve condemnation. And so He is not unjust to choose some for mercy and to pass by others. And so if you think that election is unfair, well, God says it is not. That the problem is not with God. The problem is your assumption that everyone deserves mercy. It's not wrong for us to want mercy for everyone. But it is wrong for us to assume that they deserve it. Now, now this does raise a couple of really important questions that, that I think we need to clarify. So, so first of all, well, well, if God's mercy springs solely from His purpose and goodness, then, then what role does faith play? And that's a really important question, right? Because Paul just argued very strongly in chapter 4 that, that justification... Salvation is applied by faith in Christ. So is Paul saying that, that faith isn't necessary, that God can just kind of like you know, zap people with mercy? And, or, or that somehow you know, someone could exercise faith and God could say, nah, I'm not going to give you mercy because I don't feel like it today. No. But Paul's going to say in the next chapter, Romans 10 verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, so God, again, is very clear that, that anyone who believes the Gospel will be saved and, and that we must believe the Gospel to be saved. Justification is applied by faith. But the Bible also teaches that even faith itself is a gift of God's mercy. In John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So, so, so Jesus here says some really important things, and, and he assumes in this passage that God has chosen certain people to be his sheep. And I think it's important to just be clear here that, that he's not saying, well, they believed, and therefore they became his sheep. Because what is the order here? They are God's sheep, they believe, and then they get eternal life. So, so they are chosen to be God's sheep prior to their faith. 
And so the idea then is that when Jesus calls these people through the preaching of the gospel, he causes them to hear and respond. Now, now when, we got sa- when I got saved, if, when you got saved, if you're a Christian, you came gladly and freely and willingly. You wanted to be saved. And that's the work of God's grace. So, so faith is necessary. No one will be saved without hearing the gospel and responding in faith. And so, and so we need to preach the gospel because souls depend on it. And you need to believe the gospel because your eternal destiny depends on it. But in the ultimate sense, God is sovereign over it all. And even faith itself is a mercy that God grants. Yeah, and by the way, that, that should give us tremendous confidence to go out and share the gospel. You know, sometimes we, we think, ah, my neighbor's never going to get saved. You know, my coworker, he's too hard. God wouldn't po- couldn't possibly break that heart. No. When you walk around town, when, when you go through a store and, and you see people, you should do so with, with the confidence that, that God has people out there. You know, what did Paul, uh, what did Paul, or what, what did Jesus tell Paul in the city of Corinth? I have much people in this city. So go preach. And we should have that same heart. If we share the gospel, God is going to save people. So share the gospel, preach, tell people the good news. And then a second question that I think we need to just clarify is what role does reward play? In other words, how can Paul say that that mercy is entirely unmerited when there are other passages of Scripture that teach that God rewards our labor and our obedience? Do, do we earn those rewards or not? And the answer is yes. Both are true. Now, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more tonight because tonight we're going to talk about the righteousness and the justice of God. So, so they're going to dovetail each other quite well. But, but the simple answer is, is that every reward that God gives is rooted in His mercy. Every reward God gives is rooted in mercy. So I can labor for the Lord. I, I can please the Lord. Alright? You can please the Lord as a Christian. And you can look forward to His eternal rewards. But when I get rewarded in heaven someday, I'm not going to boast about all I did. Like, look at me. You know, I get first in line. No, because, because my best efforts are only by the grace of God. And, and my best efforts only please the God because of the foundation of the Gospel. Like, like no amount of good I could do could please God apart from my, my standing in Jesus. Now, that's why when, when we receive our rewards in heaven, what are we going to do? What are we going to do with the crowns? We're going to cast them back at the feet of Jesus. Because every aspect of my relationship with God is anchored in mercy. So if you have never received Christ as your Savior, I want to urge you to receive Him today. You know, because, because you have sinned against your Creator God. You, you may have never danced around a golden calf, but, but you have sinned against God many, many times. And the Bible says you deserve His wrath. You deserve judgment. And, and the story in Exodus 32-34 is clear that there is nothing in you that demands mercy. 
You know, the fact that you grew up in a Christian family, the, the fact that you call yourself a Christian, the, the fact that you do some good things and go to church, those are not enough to demand the mercy of God. You need mercy. And, and praise the Lord that God provided mercy through Jesus because Jesus came to earth, He, he lived a perfect life. He, he perfectly fulfilled God's will and then He died in our place on the cross. He bore our punishment, our judgment. And He rose again. And so the Bible says that, that God made mercy available to us in Jesus. And, and, and Jesus can be your Savior if you will simply believe the Gospel. Confess that, that Jesus is your Creator and Lord. You have sinned against Him. You deserve His judgment. And then believe on Him. Rest in His finished work. And the Bible says, if you call on the name of the Lord, confess His Lordship, confess your sin, confess your dependence on Christ, you will be saved. And, and so please, please, do not just assume that you have a right to God's salvation and mercy. You don't. Trust in Jesus. And if you are saved, don't ever stop being amazed that God has been merciful to you. Where would we be apart from the mercy of God? Psalm, I believe it's Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, should count iniquities, who could stand? One of the scariest verses in the Bible. And you didn't earn God's mercy. You don't deserve it, and you still don't deserve it. But because God is merciful, you're not just rescued from hell. You are a son or a daughter of God. And so let's be careful never to lose our wonder at that amazing fact that you are as a Christian the recipient of mercy. And then from there, continue to rest in that mercy. Yeah, because your standing with God was never about your goodness. It was always about Christ. And yet so often we get saved and then we begin to think that it is about my goodness. And that I've got to earn it, I've got to maintain it, and I can lose it because I did this thing over here or I didn't do this thing over here. It was never about you. It was always about Christ. And His mercy will never run dry, so rest in Him. So, so Paul's first answer as to why God is not unjust is that God has the right to display mercy. And then verses 17 and 18 give a second answer, which is that God has the right to harden. So verses 17 and 18 then say, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. So, so once again, Paul makes his point from the book of Exodus. So, so let's turn now to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. And uh, this is in the story of God calling Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And, and so God tells Moses that he's going to lead them out. And Moses is going to lead them. But he also warns Moses that it's not going to be easy. In fact, look at the warning that God gives in chapter 4, verse 21. It says, The Lord said to Moses, 
When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. So God said, I'm going to delay the exodus by hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now what does that mean? And what's especially important in our text is how can that be just? How can it be right for God to harden the heart of a person so that he continues on a sinful path. Well, as far as what hardening means, hardening simply means to become calloused in your rebellion against God. To become calloused in your rebellion against God so so that normal spiritual sensitivities disappear. You know, it's like if you've got a callus on your finger and you touch an iron, it doesn't hurt like it should. And so to be hardened in your heart is, is is to have that callous so, so that you're not, so you don't have normal spiritual sensitivity. And you clearly see it in the story of the ten plagues, right? I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating story. You know, I mean, think about everything that the Egyptians and Pharaoh endured. Can you imagine having your bed full of frogs? Your house full of locusts? You know, your crops are destroyed by hail. There's nothing to eat. Your, your animals are getting killed. There's darkness. Like any normal person would pretty quickly say, this is crazy. I'm done with this. Get out of here. But not Pharaoh. He, he didn't. He, he was hardened in his heart. And, and so he, he was stubborn in his refusal. And, and he did not let the people go. It's hard to imagine, right? I mean, how could anyone be so hard? Except that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But, but we hear that and we think, well, I mean, how can a holy and righteous God harden someone in their sin? I mean, doesn't that defy His character? Now, now, in answer to that, we have to remember that God did not harden some sincere, kind, compassionate person who was searching after God. No! A Pharaoh and the Egyptians were violently oppressing the Israelites. I mean, doing tremendous evil. They are idolaters. They are worshiping false gods. Everything under the sun, including the sun itself. They're worshiping all that. These are evil people. And so God is absolutely just to harden this evil man so that he endures just a slither of the judgment that he rightly deserved. So so Pharaoh and the Egyptians... They don't deserve any sympathy from us, considering their their idolatry, their cruelty, and their defiance. God was entirely just. And then furthermore, God makes clear that this hardening served a very important purpose in God's broader broader plan. So so turn over to Exodus chapter 9, because this is the passage that Paul actually quotes from. So once Paul is down there, or excuse me, Moses, not Paul. And God speaks to Moses and He gives a very important explanation of what He's doing in Exodus 9, verses 13 through 17. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. 
For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. So, So what does God say here? He says that Israel needed to see the glory of God. They needed to understand just how great God was. That that He was not just another God. He was higher than any of the Egyptian gods. And God's glory needed to be displayed not just to the Israelites, but but to the ends of the earth. So, So God here is not just needlessly inflicting torment because He loves to see people suffer. No. He hardened an already evil man to accomplish the most important purpose in all the universe. And the greatest good for humanity, which is to know the glory of God. And and we'll see next week, Lord willing, in verses 19-23, through that that Paul is going to explain further why that is so important. So so that is what God's doing. So so then, okay, well that's great, but but what in the world is Paul's point? Well, Well, first of all, again, Paul wants to make the point that the Bible is on his side. And so once again, I want to emphasize that the Bible is Paul's authority. Because, you know, and I think this is important because, you know, particularly, I mean, we're talking about election today. An election tends to stir up a lot of debate among Christians. And a lot of times, our debates are all about what makes sense to me. What I feel. What I think is right. Or, it becomes about my ability to, to win a debate against you, to, to show that I'm smarter than you are. But folks, the only thing that really matters is what the Bible says. It's what the Bible says. And your first desire should always be faithfulness to Scripture. And, and if you're going to argue with someone or debate with someone, your goal in that conversation should always be that at the end of the day, we want to both be more faithful, more understanding of what the Bible says. So who wins when the clear message of Scripture butts up against your feelings, your instincts, and your assumptions? Don't ever work to bend the Bible to what you want it to say. Work to bend what you want to what the Bible says. And so that said... Exodus clearly teaches that God is free to harden sinners to the truth. Because God did it to Pharaoh. And and He sometimes does that. So so we need to understand very clearly that God is not some desperate, insecure lover in heaven who is searching for any and everyone to love Him and appreciate Him. No, He is the sovereign Lord and the righteous judge. And, And so therefore, Paul implies... That when the Jews of his day rejected Jesus, God wasn't obligated to chase them and to make sure that they all believed the gospel. No, God was just to harden them in their sin, to pass over them, and to move on to the Gentiles. And that brings me to Paul's second point, which is that God is free to dispense mercy and judgment. Again, verse 18 says, For I consider... That's chapter 8. So then, He has mercy on whom He desires, 
and he hardens whom he desires. So, so that verse makes a really important clarification. Yes, I mean, Pharaoh absolutely deserved to be hardened. But God didn't have to harden Pharaoh. I mean, think of Paul's own testimony. Right? Like, Paul persecuted the church of God. Paul did horrible evils. And so God would have been absolutely just to harden Paul and never give him any chance to understand and believe the gospel. But that's not what God chose to do. And in his, in his perfect wisdom, he instead aggressively pursued Paul and revealed his glory to him and saved him. And you know what? God could have done the same thing to Pharaoh. And God could have used the ten plagues to bring Pharaoh to his knees in repentance before God. But he also had the just right to harden Pharaoh so that my name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. And you know what? Jesus did the exact same thing in his ministry. Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 13 say, um, The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been granted. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying, I have chosen to reveal secrets to you, and I've chosen to hide it from these other people over here. Now, now we don't always understand why God pursues some people and not others. And again, where that gets really difficult is when someone that we love is hardened in their rebellion against Him. And yet the Bible teaches that God has the right to do that. He is free to do it and He is just in doing it. And we have to trust His infinite wisdom and and goodness that His purpose is right and good. And and next week, Lord willing, when we get to uh, verses 19 and following, we'll see that, that at the center of all of it is the glory of God. Now, now before we wrap up with a couple of of just applications, I I do want to make one really important clarification, and that is is that a lot of people look at verses 17 and 18, and and they then conclude from that 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 Paul is teaching what's sometimes called double predestination. And that's the idea that God elects people for eternal life, and He also elects people for hell, that He predestines them for eternal judgment. And, 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 it sound, and you can see why, why someone would draw that conclusion. But, but I strongly believe that, that God doesn't elect people to eternal judgment. He doesn't predestine them to hell. Because the Bible is clear that, that God is never the author of sin. He's never the source of it. He is holy and He is righteous. And that means something. We're going to talk about that this evening. That God has a character that is truly good, truly righteous. So, 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 so God never is the author of sin. It is, he, he, never, uh, he, is never pre, he never predestines people to hell. Though He does predestine them to heaven. 
And so instead, everyone who will be in hell will be there because of their own sin. Not because God elected them to that fate. And the fact that God could have stopped Pharaoh does not mean that he was required to do so. And it certainly doesn't mean that he is responsible for Pharaoh's rebellion. So I think it's really important as we look at these things, yeah, and, and with any difficult theological issue, we have to have good theological guardrails. And the attributes of God are a really important guardrail to our theology. That we have to uphold what the Bible is clear about regarding His character. So the Bible does not teach double predestination. So, so finally, what does all this mean for us? Well, well, I'd like to close with three applications. The first one is, give glory to God. As I said in my introduction, the reason this passage is so hard for us is because we overvalue ourselves and we undervalue God. And we have to remember often, because we like to begin to think otherwise, that God is not on my level. He is infinite. I am small. I have no authority over God. And God is only bound by His own righteousness and infinite purpose. So when you struggle with the ways of God, don't try to fix God by bringing God down to your level. No, instead, fix yourself and give God the glory that He is due. Now, as I said in my introduction, I mean, one of the, one of the most basic challenges of, of spiritual growth is eliminating my big me theology and replacing it with a big God theology. So give glory to God. Secondly, Rejoice in God's mercy. This passage is abundantly clear that if you are a Christian, you can't take any credit for your standing with God. You you didn't compel God to love you. And you didn't figure something out on your own. No. God chose to have mercy on you. It was His kindness alone that, that brought you to repentance. And so 1 Corinthians 1.31 says, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, I'm not here today. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a Christian. I haven't made the progress I've made in Christian growth because of anything in me. It's all the mercy of God. And so Paul could say later on in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, By the grace of God, I am what I am. There is no room for pride at the foot of the cross. Just amazement at the mercy of God. And if you are new to Christianity, now I understand this is a hard passage, you know. Like we've got a few visitors here today, and this is not the passage that a pastor naturally picks to preach on with, with people who are new to the church, and especially people who are new to the Bible. And so, I just say to you that if this is all kind of new to you, you, you don't have to understand everything that's going on in this passage. But you do need to understand that at the core of this all is that you need the mercy of God. You need the mercy of God. You can't demand it. You need to ask God to show you mercy because you are a sinner. And, and God promises mercy for all who come to the cross. Again, Romans 10.13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So call in the name of the Lord. Humble yourself before Him. 
and, and say, God, I want the salvation that you provide in Jesus. Be, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God will save. That, that's all you need to worry about for today. And then the third application is trust the Lord with what you can't understand. Again, this is a hard passage, and it's an easy place for us to jump to all sorts of sinful conclusions about God and His ways. Don't go there. Verse 14 says, May it never be that we would accuse God of injustice. So remember that that we're never going to fully comprehend an infinite God. And that's okay. That's okay. But we know that God is good. He proved it at the cross. So trust what He says. Believe every word and rest in His mercy. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the mercy that You have demonstrated to us in Christ. And Lord, we want to give You glory today for how awesome and magnificent You are. O Lord, we are debtors to Your mercy. And we thank You for all that You have done. And so, Lord, we pray that You would increase our vision of Your glory and majesty. That You would humble us before You. And that we would live lives of worship and praise and glad submission to our great Savior. In Jesus' name, Amen.